0: We are pleased to have Elder Jeffrey R. Holland as our devotional speaker this morning. He requested a very brief introduction and wants you to know that he loves you. Elder Holland was ordained a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1994. From 1980 until his calling in 1989 to the Quorum of the Seventy, Elder Holland served as Brigham Young University's ninth president. He is a former Church Commissioner of Education and dean of the College of Religious Education at BYU. Elder Holland earned both bachelor's and master's degree in English and religious education, respectively, from BYU, and master's and doctoral degrees in American Studies from Yale University. He has been honored with the Torch of Liberty Award by the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith and has served on the governing boards of several civic and business-related corporations, and is the author of eight books. Elder Holland and his wife Patricia have three children and thirteen grandchildren. Once again, Elder Holland, we welcome you to Brigham Young University and want you to know that we all love you too. Thank you,
1: President and Sister Samuelson, Brother Swindle, for that prayer, and Brother Staley and the choral group for that beautiful, beautiful arrangement of a favorite hymn, an arrangement I hadn't heard before. You look so good. Sister Holland walked in and said, I think I'm going to cry. Uh, You have to understand, uh, give give yourself 20 years or 30 and you'll know how we feel to come back here. (laughs) We love this campus. We're thrilled to be with you on it. And we love you personally with all our hearts. You have had and you will have and you do do now have uh, better university presidents uh, than I was. But you'll never have one who loves you and loves this university more than I do. Thank you for serving here. Thank you for being in attendance on a bright, clear January morning. We're grateful to... President and Sister Samuelson for their kindness and their leadership at this university. We actually know something about their jobs and what they entail. You and we are very, very lucky to have them at the helm of this special school, and we praise them publicly for the time they spend, the success they're having, and the strength that they bring. I loved every word of their counsel to you last week. And I pray that my remarks to you are consistent with their messages about light, about trust, and about the privilege it is to have the gospel of Jesus Christ enhance our study at BYU. President Sister Samuelson, we do love you. You have our prayers, our gratitude, and our support. The start of a new year is the traditional time to— Take stock of our lives and see where we're going, measured against the backdrop of where we've been. I don't want to talk to you about New Year's resolutions because you only made five of them and you've already broken four. (laughs) I give that remaining one just another week. But I do want to talk to you about the past and the future not so much in terms of New Year's commitments per se, but more with an eye toward any time of transition and change in your lives. And those moments come virtually every day of our lives. As a scriptural theme for this discussion, I've chosen the second shortest verse in all of Holy Scripture. I'm told that the shortest verse— a verse that every missionary memorizes and holds ready in case he is called on spontaneously in a zone conference, is John 11 and 35, Jesus wept. Elders, here's a second option, another shorty which will dazzle your mission president in case you're called on two zone conferences in a row. It's Luke 17 and 32 where the Savior cautions, remember Lot's wife. Hmm. What did he mean by such an enigmatic little phrase as that? To find out, I suppose we need to do as he suggested. Let's recall who Lot's wife was. The original story, of course, comes to us out of the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. When the Lord, having had as much as he could stand of the worst that men and women could do, told Lot and his family to flee, because those cities were about to be destroyed. Escape for thy life, the Lord said. Look not behind thee. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. With less than immediate obedience and more than a little negotiation, Lot and his family ultimately did leave town, but just in the nick of time. At daybreak, the morning following their escape, it says, The Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities. Then our theme today comes in the next verse. Surely, surely... With the Lord's counsel, look not behind thee, ringing clearly in her ears, Lot's wife, the record says, looked back and she was turned to a pillar of salt. In the time we have this morning, I'm not going to talk to you about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, nor of the comparison the Lord Himself has made to those days and our own time. I'm not even going to talk to you about obedience and disobedience. I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about looking back and looking ahead. One of the purposes of history is to teach us the lessons of life. George Santayana, who should be more widely read than he is on a college campus, is best known for saying that those who disregard the lessons of history are destined, sadly, to repeat them. So if history is this important, and it surely is, what did Lot's wife do that was so wrong? As something of a student of history, I've thought about that and offer this as a partial answer. Apparently, What was wrong with Lot's wife is that she wasn't just looking back, but that in her heart she wanted to go back. It would appear that even before they were past the city limits, she was already missing what Sodom and Gomorrah had offered her. As Elder Maxwell once said, such people know they should have their primary residence in Zion, but they still hope to keep a summer cottage in Babylon. It's possible that Lot's wife looked back with resentment toward the Lord for what he was asking her to leave behind. We certainly know that Laman and Lemuel did when Lehi and his family were commanded to leave Jerusalem. So, It isn't just that she looked back. She looked back longingly. In short, her attachment to the past outweighed her confidence in the future. That, apparently, was at least part of her sin. So as a new year starts and we try to benefit from a proper view of what's gone before, I plead with you not to dwell on days now gone, nor to yearn vainly for yesterday, however good those yesterdays may have been. The past is to be learned from but not lived in. We look back to claim the embers from glowing experiences, but not the ashes. And when we've learned what we need to learn, and have brought with us the best that we've experienced, then we look ahead. We remember that faith is always pointed toward the future. Faith always has to do with blessings and truths and events that will yet be efficacious in our lives. So a more theological way to talk about Lot's wife is to say, she did not have faith. She doubted the Lord's ability to give her something better than she had. Apparently, fatally as it turned out, she thought that nothing that lay ahead could possibly be as good as those moments she was leaving behind. It is here, at this moment, in this little story that we wish Lot's wife had been a student at BYU. Enrolled in a freshman English class because, with any luck, she might have read, as I did, this verse from Edwin Arlington Robinson. Cheevy, child of scorn, grew lean while he assailed the seasons. He wept that he was ever born. And he had reasons. Miniver loved the days of old. When swords were bright and steeds were prancing, the vision of the warrior bold would set him dancing. Miniver sighed for what was not and dreamed and rested from his labors. He dreamed of Thebes and Camelot and Priam's neighbors. Miniver cursed the commonplace and eyed a khaki suit with loathing. He missed the medieval grace of iron clothing. Miniver Cheevy, born too late, scratched his head and kept on thinking. Miniver coughed and called it fate and kept on drinking. To yearn to go back to a world that cannot be lived in now, to be perennially dissatisfied with present circumstances and have only dismal views of the future, to miss the here and now and tomorrow because we're so trapped in the there and then and yesterday, these are some of the sins, if we may call them that, of both Lot's wife and old Mr. Cheevy. Now, as a passing comment, I don't know whether Lot's wife, like Miniver, was a drinker. But if she was, she certainly ended up with plenty of salt for her pretzels. One of my favorite books of the New Testament is Paul's too-seldom-read letter to the Philippians. After reviewing the very privileged and rewarding life of his early years, his birthright, his education, his standing in the Jewish community, Paul says that all of that was nothing, dung, he he calls it, compared to his conversion to Christianity. He says, and I paraphrase, I've stopped rhapsodizing about the good old days and now eagerly look toward the future that I may apprehend that for which Christ apprehended me. Then this verse noted on the screen. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. No Lot's wife here. No looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah here. Paul knows it's out there in the future, up ahead, wherever heaven is taking us, that we will win the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. At this point, let me sort of pause and add a lesson that applies both in your own life and also in the lives of others. There is something in us, at least in too many of us, that particularly fails to forgive and forget earlier mistakes in life—either mistakes we ourselves have made or the mistakes of others. That is not good. It is not Christian. It stands in terrible opposition to the grandeur and majesty of the atonement of Christ. To be tied to earlier mistakes, our own or other people's, is the worst kind of wallowing in the past from which we are called to cease and desist. I was told once, many years ago, of a young man who for many years was more or less the brunt of every joke in his school. He had some disadvantages and it was easy for peers to tease him. Later in his life he moved away from his community. He eventually joined the Army and that led to some successful experiences there in getting an education and generally stepping away from his past. Above all, As many in the military do, he discovered the beauty and majesty of the Church and became very active and very happy in it. Then, after several years, he came back to the town of his youth. Most of his generation had moved on, but not all. Apparently, when he returned, quite successful and quite reborn, the same old mindset that had existed before, was still there waiting for his return. He was still just, to them, old so-and-so. You, you remember uh, the guy who had the problem, that idiosyncrasy, and this quirky nature, and did such and such and such and such, and wasn't at all just hilarious. Well, you know what happened. Surely you know what happened. Little by little, this man's Pauline-like effort to leave that which was behind and grasp the prize which God lay before him, he was gradually taken away from that, diminished until he died about the way he'd lived in his youth, kind of came full circle, inactive, unhappy the brunt of a new generation of jokes. Yet he had had that one bright, beautiful, midlife moment—an exception—when he had been able to rise above his past and truly see who he was and what he could become. Too bad, too sad, he was again to be surrounded by a whole batch of Lot's wives—those who thought his past was more interesting than his future. Yes, they managed to rip out of his grasp that for which Christ had grasped him. And he died even more sadly than Meneverchievi though, as far as I know the story, through absolutely no fault of his own. That happens in marriages, too, and in other relationships we have. I can't tell you the number of couples I've counseled who, when they're deeply hurt or even just deeply stressed, reach farther and farther and farther into the past to find yet a bigger brick to throw through the window pane of their marriage, spelled P A I N. When something is over and done with, when it has been repented of as fully as it can be repented of, when life has moved on as it should, and a lot of other wonderfully good things have happened since then, it is not right. To go back and open up some ancient wound which the Son of God Himself died trying to heal. Let people repent. Let people grow. Believe that people can change and improve. Is that faith? Yes. Is that hope? Yes. Is it charity? Yes, above all, it is charity, the pure love of Christ. If something is buried in the past, leave it buried. Don't keep going back with your little sandpail and beach shovel to dig it up, wave it around, and then throw it at someone, saying, Hey, do you remember this? Splat! Well, guess what? That is probably going to result in some ugly morsel being dug up out of your landfill. With the reply, Yeah, I remember it. Do you remember this? Splat! (laughs) And soon enough, everyone comes out of that exchange dirty and muddy and unhappy and hurt when what God, our Father in Heaven, pleads for is cleanliness and kindness and happiness and healing. Such dwelling on past lives, including past mistakes, is just not right. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's worse than Miniverchivy and in some ways worse than Lot's wife because at least there he and she were only destroying themselves. In these cases of marriage and family and wards and apartments and neighborhoods, we can end up destroying so many, many others. Perhaps at this beginning of a new year, There is no greater requirement for us than to do as the Lord Himself said He does. And I quote Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. The provision, of course, is that repentance has to be sincere. But when it is, And when honest effort is being made to progress, we are guilty of the greater sin if we keep remembering and recalling and rebashing someone with their earlier mistakes. And that someone might be ourselves. We can be so hard on ourselves, often much more so than with others. Now, like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's of the Book of Mormon, bury your weapons of war and leave them buried. Forgive. And do that which is harder than to forgive. Forget. And when it comes up to mind again, forget it again. You can remember just enough to avoid repeating the mistake. But then put the rest of all of it on the dung heap Paul spoke of to those Philippians. Dismiss the destructive and keep dismissing it until the beauty of the Atonement of Christ has revealed to you your bright future and the bright future of your family and your friends and your neighbors. God doesn't care nearly as much about where you've been as He does about where you are, and with His help where you are willing to go. That's the thing Lot's wife didn't get, nor Laman and Lemuel, and a host of others in the Scriptures. This is an important matter to consider at the start of a new year. And every day ought to be the start of a new year and a new life. Such is the wonder of faith and repentance and the miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We started this hour with a little verse remembered from one of my BYU English classes. May I move toward a close with a few lines From another favorite poet, whom I probably met in that same class or one similar to it, for the benefit of all BYU students, in the new year of 2009, Robert Browning wrote, Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life, for which the first was made, our times are in his hand, who saith, a whole, w-h-o-l-e, a whole I planned, youth shows but half, trust God, see all nor be afraid." Sister Holland and I were married about the time both of us were reading poems like that in BYU classrooms. We were as starstruck and as fearful as most of you are at these ages and stages of life. We had absolutely no money, zero, for a variety of reasons. Neither of our families were able to help finance our education. We had a small apartment just south of campus, the smallest we could find, two bedrooms and a half-bath. We were both working too many hours trying to stay afloat financially, but we had no other choice. I remember One fall day, I think it was in the first semester after our marriage in 1963, we were walking together up the hill past the Mazer Building on the sidewalk that led up between the President's home and the Brimhall Building. Somewhere on that path, We paused, stopped, and wondered what we had gotten ourselves into. Life that day seemed so overwhelming, and the undergraduate plus graduate years that we still anticipated before us seemed monumental, nearly insurmountable. Our love for each other and our commitment to the gospel were strong, But most of all the other temporal things around us seemed particularly ominous. On a spot, which I could probably still mark for you today, I turned to Pat and said something like this. Honey, should we give up? I can get a good job and carve out a good living for us. I can do some things. I'll be okay without a degree. Should we stop trying to tackle what right now seems so difficult to face? In my best reenactment of Lot's wife, I said, in effect, let's go back. Let's go home. The future holds Nothing for us. Then my beloved little bride did what she has done for 45 years since then. She grabbed me by the lapels and said, We are not going back. We are not going home. The future holds everything for us. She stood there in the sunlight that day and gave me a real talk. I don't recall that she quoted Paul, but there was certainly plenty in her voice that said she was committed to setting aside all that was past— in order to press toward and seize the prize of God that lay yet ahead. It was a living demonstration of faith. It was the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we laughed, kept walking and finished up sharing a root beer—one glass, two straws—at the then newly constructed Wilkinson Center. Twenty years later, I would on occasion look out of the window of the President's home across the street from that Brimhall building and picture there on the sidewalk Two wed BYU students, down on their money and down even more on their confidence. And as I would gaze out that window, usually at night, I would occasionally see not Pat and Jeff Holland, but you—and you, and you, and you. And you. Who are walking that same sidewalk. I would see you sometimes as couples, sometimes as a group of friends, sometimes just a lone student. But I knew something of what you were feeling and some of the thoughts that you were having. Thoughts like, is there any future for me? what does a new year or a new semester or a new major or a new romance hold for me? Will I be safe? Will life be sound? Can I trust in the Lord and in the future? Or would it be better, you might be asking, would it be better to go back, go home with Lot's wife? To all such of every generation, I call out, You remember, Lot's wife. Faith is for the future. Faith builds on the past, but never longs to stay there. Faith trusts that God has great things in store for each of us and that Christ truly is the High Priest of good things to come. My young brothers and sisters, I pray you will have a wonderful semester, a wonderful new year, a wonderful life, all filled with faith and hope and charity. Keep your eyes on your dreams, however distant and far away. Live to see the miracles of repentance and forgiveness, of trust and divine love that will transform your life today, tomorrow, and forever. That is a New Year's resolution I ask you to keep, and I leave a blessing on you, every single one of you, to be able to do so and be that happy in the name of Him who makes all of that possible, even the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.